good to be with you. Um, like I said earlier, my name is Nick. I serve as one of the pastors here at Solid Rock, and it really is good to be here on Easter Sunday with you. It's a time for us to, yes, take a moment and focus on the resurrection of Jesus, um, but we know that it does play a bigger role in our life, our everyday life as believers, to recognize that he did raise himself up from the dead, which is something that is wonderful news. Amen? All right, I have a few things I wanted to just share with you. Uh, one is our Wednesday worship is this coming Wednesday, April 12th at 6.30, right here in this main worship center. We want you to be aware of it because it's an awesome time for all of us to get together and have a really low-key evening of worship and hearing God's word and then also being able to just spend some time with one another in community. And so I hope you will be able to be here for it. Um, there is kids ministry from third all the way through high school. So if you have little ones, man, bring them in here. There's plenty of space to spread out. They're not a distraction. Kids are a blessing. Um, and I really mean that. Like whenever there's like some kids speaking or things like that, it's just part of the same voice that's in my head. It's all, it's all good. And so we really want you guys to feel free to come and just be a family and be part of it. And the other part that makes this a really special time for us this coming Wednesday is our new student minister, Alex Sims, and his wife, Brianna, are actually going to come and be there, a part of that. Um, so they're going to hang out with the kids in the first part of the uh, evening, but then they're going to come in and be with us. And it's a great opportunity for you to get to know Alex and his wife and to be able to just get to know a little bit better about who God is bringing into our church, and then also for him, them to get to know us as a church as well. And so it's going to be a really awesome night to be a part of. I hope you'll be there. Again, it's this Wednesday at 6.30. And the last announcement I want to give you is our women's conference that's coming up April 21st and 22nd. It's going to be an awesome time. We have worship, we have breakout leaders and speakers, and we also have like a mission project that you guys get to be a part of um, to just love on the people in this community. And so we're really excited about that. And the reason why I'm telling you this is as a church and from our women's ministry team, um, our, the women in our church are important to us. Um, we want to take a moment and give a weekend to you, which is not enough. You deserve more. But it's just we want to give a weekend to you to recognize what you mean to us as a church, um, in your home, in the workplace where you serve, um, and just pour into you and invest and encourage you uh, because you matter and, you've, and you're valuable and you're worth it. And so this is uh, April 21st and 22nd. It's a Friday evening and a Saturday. There's more information online if you register. If you get your phone out right now, it will not bother me. Go for it. I want you to be there. Um, the cost is $65, but the registration closes at the end of today. So I know you have a lot of things going on. There's ham and rolls and family and like you've got a whole event probably going on. There's a coordinator probably somewhere. But anyways, you got a lot going on, so please take an opportunity, register for it now. Um, we want you to be there. We want you to be a part of it because, like I said, you, you all matter very much to us as a church. And so I'm really grateful for you guys to be here. I'm grateful for those joining us online. Um, Jason Williams was supposed to be here with us. He got sick last week, and so uh, unfortunately he just went downhill real quick. And, um, but we were grateful to be able to step in and love him, and he's at home resting. I miss him. I, I when part of our family is not here, and that includes you, it just, you're, it's felt. And so, but we also are really glad he's taking the time to get better and take care of himself. And I know there's a lot of church members that are home right now that aren't feeling well or dealing with different things. We're always glad that you're able to join us online, but we always know that your presence is missed when you are not here. So 
We're going to be jumping into Luke chapter, we're actually going to start in verse, or chapter 23 and work our way into 24. So if you want to go on and start working your way there. But one of the things I wanted to ask us to kind of get us thinking about uh, this passage is, is what do you do when you sense danger in your life? Like, what do you do when there is fear around your safety? Like, I know for me, I tend to like tense up and brace myself. Um, we had snow not too long ago, and I was driving from Arlington, and I hit an overpass, and I was doing all the right things, I promise you. But the tail end of the car slipped out from underneath me, and I, I did all the things I was supposed to do, but the biggest thing I remember from that moment is I tensed up so much to brace for impact that I hurt for the rest of the week when I got home. I might as well have hit something the way I felt. And so it's just one of those things like when we feel something that's not right, there's a part of us that braces for the impact or maybe we get really distant from whatever that thing is or that person or that event. And so one of the things, like, just to give you another illustration, is um, one of the, our, our, we have many teams that serve on our campus, and one of them is to get the campus ready. And our mowing team, the grounds team, was getting it ready, and they were mowing. And mowing is not mostly a dangerous activity, you know? It's not something you think about, really. But when you're mowing around water, it can get kind of dangerous, right? And so one of our mowing guys was going around the pond, and we have a picture it's kind of hard to see. Now, at first glance, you think that's a push mower and you're seeing the top of the handle. That's the big mower and that's the roll cage. And so when you started going, oh, the lawnmower has a roll cage. It also has a seat belt. It's a big thing. And it just, the grass and the mud, it just slid right in. And luckily, the guy mowing it, he was safe. He was able to get a seat belt off. You know, nobody, like the mower was off. You know, nobody got anything chopped off, but... We had to pull it out of the water. No mowers were hurt in the making of this illustration. Um, it does work. It's running. Um, but it's just one of those things like you, you're, you're, you know the water's dangerous and you're going around. You're trying to be as careful as possible, right? But sometimes when we get really close to it, we tense up or we wish we were further away from it. And so this illustration is just a way to kind of help us start thinking about how do we deal with that in our everyday life? Because the reality is, is that Jesus is inviting us into a relationship to walk alongside of him in a personal and present way. And that in this life, it's not always safe. But to be with Jesus is actually to be with the most safe person you can actually be with. And he's not just a person, he is the living, true God. Because he holds the keys to life and death. And that's really hard for us. And I'm being honest as a pastor that I don't have this all figured out. And I'm like, hey, I'm helping you catch up to where I'm at in this. No, I have to be reminded of this all the time. That Jesus holds the keys to life and death. And he is the safest person to be around. Because in my flesh, when I feel something is unsafe, I want to tense up. And I want to protect myself. And I want to get away from it as much as possible. And so we're going to see this kind of come up in the Luke chapter 23 going into chapter 24. So if you will, join me in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. And it reads as such, It was now about the sixth hour, which is noon. And there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for his spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And please take note of verse 49. It says, in all his acquaintances, his mean Jesus, and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's really easy for us sometimes when we read scripture to like look at Israel and just go, silly Israel. You guys had all these signs and miracles and you had God and you had all these amazing things that God told you what it was going to be like and you just didn't believe and we kind of shamed them, right? But if we're being honest with ourselves, we're more like Israel than we want to believe ourselves. And it's easy to look at these followers of Christ and go, man, how can they not believe? They saw all the miracles. They saw Jesus himself. Like, why are they watching from a distance? Because they sense the danger. They sense what it looks like to be close in the presence of Jesus at that time and what that could cost them. And there's some amazing things happening in this passage. And the first one is that the temple veil was torn in two. Up until this point, having a relationship with Christ was not how you and I have experienced it on this side of the Resurrection Sunday. So for them, they had to believe in the law and the systems and the religious sacrifice, and it was not enough. Like it was something they had to do continuously all the time, hoping to restore a relationship with God because there was a separation between God's holiness and where we were. And so for in this moment of Christ's crucifixion, for him to tear down that veil, to be able to remove the thing that separated us is not a little thing. And then simultaneously entrusting his spirit to the Father and crying out. And it's one of the things that if we don't stop, one of the most precious things you and I have is our soul. There are a lot of things in our life that mean something to us, that have value, that whether it's a thing, an object, a person, or maybe it's a memory or an event, but the most precious thing you have is your soul. You didn't create it, but you were made in God's image. You were dead in it, but he's the one who brings it to life. And for Jesus in this moment to give himself up into, the, into your hands, I commit my spirit, this sweet victory. You're talking about the most ultimate express of trust that you can give to give up your life, to give up your spirit in death to someone else. Like this is what we're looking at. This is what Jesus did to call us into his presence. But this is also how Jesus calls us to walk with him. We look at other uh, characters in scripture like David. David found himself always surrounded by enemies, right? It just seems like that was part of David's story. Sometimes it wasn't his fault, but a lot of times he did it to himself and there were consequences, right? But David always found himself in the Psalms crying out to God. And in Psalms 31, starting in verse 3, it says, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. And verse 5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. See, David didn't say it's time to fight. David didn't say it's time to take control. David didn't say, like, let's do this. What David said in the sweet surrendering is, is, Lord, my life is yours. My spirit 
is yours. He trusted all these good things that he said. Like this is one of those sober-minded times where David's actually saying good things, calling Jesus the rock and the fortress that he's led and guided me and protected him, right? But the biggest thing he said is, take my life, take my spirit in your hand, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. We also see this example in Stephen who followed after Jesus and was actually martyred by Paul, uh, who was Saul at the time, right? And, in, and it says in Acts 7, verse 59, it says, and as, as they were stoning Stephen, so this isn't a pre-thought, this is as it is happening, he called out and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So as he's literally giving up his life, because he didn't fight, he gave up his life, he cries out in a prayer, Lord, take my spirit, receive my spirit. Peter talks about this example in Jesus, and Peter calls us to respond the same way. We see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are called to entrust our souls, our spirit, unto the Lord, unto the God who is creator of all things, who is faithful and good. And that entrust is the same word that's used when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. I entrust my spirit. And so we see Jesus is calling us to do the same thing, to entrust ourselves to the Father. And so how do we do this? We see with David, he cried out in prayer, right? We see in Stephen, he cried out in prayer. We see with Jesus, he cried out in prayer, into your hand I entrust my spirit, the most precious thing you could ever have. I'm going to entrust you with that thing. Guys, it's hard to entrust. There's so many things like to entrust um, that God's going to take care of us financially. Like God's going to entrust to provide us a job that can do that. Or that God will give us a job that maybe will give me some safety. I mean, we've learned over the last few years, like having faith in our jobs and its safety doesn't provide what it says it does, does it? to entrust our children, to entrust our, our um, just everyday life things. It's not always easy to entrust, but that is what Jesus is calling us to. And so with this, we see this ultimate expression of truth, uh, true trust and surrender. But it says for all of his acquaintances, including the women, they watch from a distance. They watched from a distance. They wanted to watch what would happen to him without being with him. Now, it sounds really judgmental and shamey. I'm just, I'm just saying what is actually happening, and I can relate to this. Like, I want to see what's happening. I want to be, be close when the good stuff starts happening. But when the bad stuff starts hitting the fan, i, I got to get out of here. I need to feel safe. But we, wanna, we want that, right? Like, we want to feel close enough to Jesus to see what he's up to but giving him space in our lives to actually do it, that's hard to entrust. It's hard. We want to know enough about Jesus to make us feel safe without actually knowing him in a real relationship. But ultimately, when we look at what we're talking about in trusting spirit, that means what we are entrusting is bigger than just everyday life. We are asking God to, um, we are entrusting God to take care of us, the guy who is over life and death. 
the king over life and death, the one who created us, the one who knows us, the image we were made in. Let's look in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's interesting. He's looking for the kingdom of God. And verse 52 says, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. This would have been 6 o'clock in the evening. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking their spices that they had prepared. See, it's really interesting that Joseph was seeking the kingdom of God. And what Joseph thought, what, that, what does that look like? He's, he's like, I think that means taking care of the body of Jesus. Right? Like they wanted to honor Jesus. They wanted to honor who he was, right? And that's something that we all desire, especially when we lose a loved one in our life. We want to honor them. We want to honor their life and their story. And they had the time clock kind of pressing, right? Because at six o'clock was Sabbath and you're not supposed to do any work. So preparing a body and moving a body and getting a body ready for a tomb was not something they could do on the Sabbath. They would have to wait till Sabbath was over. So they in honor and a desire to give reverence to the body of Christ, they, they, they bound him in linen, they put him in the tomb, and they prepared spices and ointments, and they were trying to honor Jesus by responding to his death and having respect for his body, but they didn't have faith in his promise is the issue. They didn't have faith in his promise, and it's not because they prepared his body that shows they didn't have faith in his promise, We'll get to that a little bit later. See, there's a difference between being religious versus being relational. And what Jesus is calling us, he's calling us to be relational. So one of the jobs I've had in my life was for this company. And it was one of those things, it was a company that I needed at the time to provide um, for me financially to take care of my family and to go to school and different things like that. But it was a really difficult company to work for. And part of it was it was not relational at all. Like, it was actually really a lonely place because the main thing was is we all had our task that we knew we were supposed to do for that day, that week, and actually you could probably look for the rest of the year pending what may come up or not come up. And so you would start your day and you would do your task. And you would do your task. And oftentimes you were doing your task by yourself or you were doing your task while someone else was doing their task. And here's the thing, I had a lot of respect and reverence for the person that I worked for, right? I wanted to serve my earthly master well, even though I had a lot of anxiety and fear of, I would go to bed at night going, did I do all my task? Did I, did all my, did, did I do it right? Because in each task, it told you when it was supposed to be done, how it was supposed to be done, how to troubleshoot it. So there was really, it was built out, there was no excuse to not have the task done. And I would go to bed at night going, did I do them all? And it ate at me. And I would wake up in the morning going, what did I not do? And do I have enough time to do it all today? It was awful. 
And then you, it was one of those things like being close to the, the bosses, like you, you kind of wanted to be close, but you didn't really want to be close all at the same time if you've ever had a job like that. I wanted them to see me working, but I didn't want them to talk to me. <laughs> Talking just didn't seem like it was going to go well because they were probably going to give me more tasks. <laughs> so it was kind of like, I'm going to just take care of the tasks that I have, do a really good job on that. Hopefully they see it, but they don't remember me. <laughs> and go and like really look at all the tasks, right? And so that was kind of like my best way to describe, like I had this reverence, right? I had this respect. I wanted to do my job well, and I, was, and I did for the longest time there. And I was so grateful God called me out of it, but I didn't have a relationship with anybody, really. Especially the main bosses, and it was lonely. And we can do that ourselves in the church. We can honor God by our attendance and our words and our actions, but it can not be in a relationship. So we end up being like the whitewashed tomb that's just dead inside. It looks good, but it's just not really alive. We can do this by studying theology in order to be right. Instead of studying God's word to have a more accurate view of him, to have a relationship with God actually. We can do this by faithfully attending church and learning church lingo and going through the motions. And we can do all those things hoping that we did enough of the task to mark it off that we believe, that we have faith, that we've entrusted. Like, if I do all these tasks, then I've entrusted my spirit to God. But that's not what he's called us to. God is calling us to something better than religion and checking off a task. He's calling us into a relationship. And that means simply just being who he made you to be in his image. It means having this relationship that allows us to press into him, to be known by him, and to be loved by him. Luke 24, chapter 2, verse 12 says this, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. Guys, we forget. We need to be reminded. The, the, the visitors in dazzling apparel, those are the angels. It's not me. I know it's confusing. <laughs> but here's, it's such an act of grace that God would send his messengers to remind them of what he said not even that long ago. That I would be turned over, that I would be crucified, and then I would raise myself up on the third day. What an act of grace. It's often easy for us to maybe think that they're shaming them. Like, don't you remember? Right? But it's not. It's like, remember this. Remember what he told you in Galilee. It's coming true. And he's, he's, he's asking them into this because he realizes they're perplexed. Like, they don't get it. They were not expecting the resurrection. And again, don't go into the how could they not know thing. Because we do the same thing. But even in their perplexity, and they're like, I don't understand what's going on, God's grace to remind them is just evident in this passage. 
So they were perplexed because they were not expecting this resurrection, which means they weren't expecting Jesus to be able to fulfill or keep that promise. How many times in our own life is there part of us that doesn't feel like Jesus will fulfill or keep some of his promises? And it makes it hard to entrust. It makes it hard for us to want to step in closer into presence with him. But instead, we brace ourselves. Or we try to keep our distance as much as possible. And I wonder if that's what keeps us from being fully known and present with the Lord in our everyday lives because there's a part of us that's hedging our bet that we want to be close enough that if something good happens, we can be there. But if there's something bad that could come up, we're ready to bail. Following after Jesus is not always safe for us in this life. But following after Jesus means that we can entrust our spirits to the one who holds the keys to life and death. Um, there's a Christian rapper, his name's Andy Minio. If you know him, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know him, you're welcome. Um, but he has this song that says, you can't stop this. And he's talking about God. He, t- he says one line is, I'm my biggest enemy and even I can't stop God. And then the best one was, is my God is good, but he's not safe. And what he means by that is following after Christ is we're following after a really powerful God. Right? We're following after a really powerful God. But because he holds the keys to life and death, he is the safest one for us to be with. It may come at a cost, and even if it costs us our lives, it is far better to be with him. But there's a part of us, I do believe, in this fear that we don't want to be disappointed. Because being disappointed is attached to feeling rejected, right? Like you hoped for something, you longed to feel connected, but you felt rejected and said, or God felt distant or far to you, or you felt abandoned by God maybe, Like, we don't like to be disappointed. Disappointment arises when expectations aren't met. And so when we need to read God's word, like, we get to see God actually, and we are never going to be disappointed. But disappointment in our everyday life is one of the most painful things we can go through. We don't like being disappointed. But when you entrust your soul, when you entrust your spirit, you will never be disappointed by Christ. Yes, it may come with a cost in this life, but when we start turning our minds to eternal things and his kingdom, he is worthy to be entrusted. So when you start thinking about how do you trust, let's look at Luke 24, verse 8. It says, And they remembered his words, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the angels remind them, they go and tell the apostles, and as they're telling the apostles, 
They said it reminded them or it was like an idle tale. Man, how much can you relate to that? How much can you relate that God's promises and that he's worthy to be in trust and it just feels sometimes like maybe it's an idle tale that he's not enough to give my everything to or maybe he's enough to give some of my stuff to or maybe if I'm just a majority owner and I give 51% to him and maybe that makes me the minority. But he's calling us to entrust him with our everything. And he's faithful to remind us, even when it feels like an idle truth. And so we see with Peter, what does Peter do? Peter goes to see the empty tomb, to see if it's real so he can trust. Seeing is not always believing, right? But if we can see it, it helps us. We're like, if you can prove this to me, Right, Or if you can somehow give me a guarantee that if I put in, I'm not going to lose big. And it's this idol of control, right? And, and I'm reminded all the time, control is an illusion. It really is. There is nothing I have control over, really. And so we see this trust is the antithesis of control, like really pressing in because we believe in faith what Jesus is saying. This invitation is to surrender and trust or entrust ourselves to Jesus. So for me growing up, it made it hard sometimes for me to trust. Um, I wanted the guarantees. And so there was some, I consider kind of like prosperity gospel for me was growing up felt safe is if you do the right things, Nothing bad will happen. That was something I believed. That was something I was kind of taught. If you do the right things, nothing bad will happen. We're adding something to Scripture. That's what makes it kind of like a prosperity gospel, right? If you don't do the wrong things, nothing bad will happen. So do the right things, and great things will happen. Does that make sense? So one of the other things was like have a godly marriage, Right? I grew up in the purity culture. It's like, don't be intimate before marriage. If you do that, you'll have an amazing marriage. But the problem is, is it doesn't take in the fact that we are still in a sanctification process. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I didn't kiss my wife till the day we got married. But my wife and I were not ever guaranteed to have a wonderful marriage because of that. It was taught, it was kind of understood, it was kind of mentioned, and we believed it to some extent. Like, oh, Yeah, if we do it the right way, our marriage will be blessed and we will have no issues. You know how hard it is to be married to someone who's always trying to get it right and be right and think they're right and want to be right? It's lonely. It's hard. And so like for my wife and I, we, I think even like to illustrate this more, our premarital was a 40-minute conversation and the pastor goes, you guys got this. I got news for you. We ain't got this. Because we are in need of sanctification. We are in need of trusting ourselves daily to the Lord. And just like our marriage, it's the same thing with our kids. I can't promise my kids will be fine because dad's a pastor and we always went to church. Even though there's some of us think that if we go to church enough, 
that that'll somehow protect our children. It's not. Is it a great and wonderful, worthy thing to do? Heck yes. But it is not a guarantee that this world won't be hard or dangerous or fearful at times. But I can show my kids what it looks like, even in failure, what it looks like to entrust God with my life when I don't do it right. I can show up and go, I didn't entrust God. But I'm going to apologize. I'm going to own that I didn't. I'm going to ask God to love me. And guess what? He's going to love me. Even at my worst, he's going to love me. Even when I forget, even when I don't entrust, even when I want to take all the control back that I think I have. Because it's about a relationship. It's not about a checklist. Because I thought in my mind, if I just do everything right, I will have this wonderful life that will be somehow protected in a bubble. And not only would it be protected in a bubble, somehow it would be evidence of God. You know what's evidence of God? is walking through redemption when I fail over and over again, when I forget, when I don't believe, when I don't entrust, that he receives me again and again and again. Not because I gotta be saved over and over again, but because he's just sanctifying me and he's working some things out in me. But not only is he working things out in me, he's putting good things on me. And as I get more relational with the Father, I get more relational, relational, relational with my wife and my kids and with you guys. And it's wonderful. I don't want to go back to the checklist. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm tempted to do that when I feel fearful. But relationship is the safest place that I've ever been in Jesus. So Jesus' followers followed him at a distance because ultimately they didn't trust him. They didn't want to entrust all of themselves to him. They cared for him. They respected him but they didn't entrust themselves to him fully. And here's the thing, folks. We will fail. We will not be perfect in this. But this is what he's calling us to. The safest place for you to be is in a trusting relationship with Jesus. No matter who you are, where you are, what's going on in your life. Because he's the one who holds the keys to life and death. David entrusted his life into God's hands. Stephen entrusted his life into God's hand. Even Jesus himself entrusted his life into the Father's hands. So at this time, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and, and help set up a place for us to respond. Really, there's just two questions. Like, will you entrust your spirit, your everything, into the life of God? And for you, that may be the first time today. And if that's true, awesome. There's no better time than right now. And if you're like, I don't know what to ask. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do this. Man, that's why we have prayer partners. That's why elders are gonna be in the commons area. None of us are where we are by ourselves. It wasn't just me and Jesus. No, it was me, Jesus, and a lot of faithful men and women in my life including now. So will you entrust your life to Jesus? And maybe you have been a believer um, and maybe what it looks like for you right now is you're like, I believe, but I've been following Jesus at a distance because that feels safe. That feels like the, the best of both worlds for me. And you're going, if you're being honest, like it's lonely. 
you, you're feeling the fear and the loneliness and it feels like God's not with you. And if you're here today and that's you and you're describing it, hey, I have no shame for you. God has no shame for you if you're saying this is where I'm at. The beauty of saying this is where I'm at is God meets you there. Doesn't do any good to go, yeah, I'm way over there, right? And so this is the invitation to have a real relationship with the Heavenly Father, the one who holds the keys to life and death because he has shown us and he has proved it over and over and over again. And we believe in faith and entrust ourselves to the only one who can do what he said he would do. And so I'm gonna pray, and then as, as God leads you, I just pray that you just be faithful. Faithful to let him just love you and cover you and to allow you to know what it feels like to be ultimately safe in the arms of the Father. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you. There's such gratitude in knowing that, God, you loved us at our worst, and you've seen what our best is, and it is nothing. Your word says our righteousness is like filthy rags. But you sent your son, your only son, to do what we were unable to do, and you knew this. And because of that, God, you have torn the veil so there is nothing that hinders us in relationship with you now because we can cry out and say, I entrust my life to you and believe in faith and that is all that is required, that you are who you say you are, that you did what you said you would do, that you would be crucified, buried, and rose again, and that you would create a life in relationship with us. So, Lord, we come before you just in faith. Not an agenda, not in a plan to do it right, but just in faith to be seen and known and loved by you. So, Lord, we love you. We pray this in your name.